All right, hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, this week, James Bond has been drinking a lot of double bourbons um, as he watches <laughs> as he watches in horror the news footage, the apocalyptic news footage from San Francisco, all the fires, smoke, and orange skies. And despite being thousands of miles away in his London apartment, he can still hear the screams of Stacey's son. <laughs> <laughs> James! James! <laughs> so I'm your Finland host, James Fenshaw, my MI6 and MI6 Confidential Magazine, and we have a reduced a reduced crew this week because of the movie we chose. So um, <laughs> the uh, the core team are here. Yeah. David, Bill, Lisa, and Calvin. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Right, I am David Lee. I run the James Bond dossier. I am the author of the complete guide to the drinks of James Bond. I'm also quite a fan of Spectre, so uh, you need to be careful, otherwise we may not be talking <laughs> for uh, future episodes. And tonight I'm drinking um, a beer. It's a Australia Dam, which is the beer of Barcelona to celebrate the fact that it is uh, the National Day of Catalonia. And um, mm. it if you want to uh, uh, sponsor me, uh, just send a crate round. Thanks. <laughs> um, I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. And I actually like the first half of Spectre, the part we're going to do the watch along today. So at least we're getting the best part of Spectre. Um, so anyway, we can talk about it more, but uh, good to be with you. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnell. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds. I'm the editor for His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. And today I am drinking ginger ale with a double shot of amaretto because Spectre is not my favorite film. Uh, and I'm going to grin and bear it. And I'm here to look for the positives of the film. I know a lot of people are fans of it. So I'm going in with a positive attitude and I want David to talk to me at the end of this podcast. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to keep it positive. Of course, critique as always, but try to keep it positive. The Mexican government was quite fond of it, particularly the shot before the main titles. But <laughs> Praise indeed. Um, yeah, text I'm breaks. I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I make videos about all things Bond video reviews, reactions, and uh, for the highbrow amongst you, video essays occasionally. Uh, and I'm drinking uh, rum and coke, but I've already had two glasses of rose. So I. Uh, yeah. You're mixing grape and grain today. This is yeah. going to be a good one. Who knows what might happen? Video essays? Did you invent that? Oh, no, no, no. I got, no, no. No, they actually, like, I know academics who do video essays. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're a thing. Very, very upmarket, Calvin. I'm yes. impressed. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you, Calvin. I like it. Oh, thank you. Yes. I don't even really know if they count as video essays, but uh, <laughs> I, I just like the term and I think it sounds more highbrow than other so, reactions. Yeah. It, it, does, it does sound better they when it, it, it does elevate that upcoming documentary about the flaws of James Bond that you're putting together. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so you're not a YouTuber, you're a, a video essayer. Well, I, I didn't think I was going to be questioned so much on <laughs> throwaway <laughs> comments, but uh, I, I, yeah, go on then. I'll, I'll, I'll have that. All right. So 
due to the length and the number of things we need to talk about, we're going to split Spectre in half today. So if you want to watch this whole thing go through in one sitting, wait till next week. Um, but if not, join us for part one. Um, and we're going to break when the action shifts to 10 years at one hour and 17 minutes. So um, everybody got the eye of the lion. All right. Everybody good? Yep. Yeah. David's on deck this week in three, two, one. We're very sorry. Play. We apologize for this podcast. Now, real quick, okay, we have MGM, and then we have the Columbia Torch Lady, and, like, there's music, and it's like music playing during the Columbia logo, it goes back many decades, long before Sony bought Columbia. It's like you, at least as far back as uh, Lawrence of Arabia, probably before that. I, I love oh. the Columbia logo, actually. It's, it's yeah. great. So, so we finally get a gun barrel at the start in a Craig movie, but they still monkey around with it, including how he's swinging his arm around. You can see the gun, like the guy. It's very tricky, isn't it? Yeah. And then it's followed yeah. by the most pretentious opening to a Bond film with this The, the Dead or Alive. alive. I, well, you know, yeah. it, it was like Sam Mendes was interviewed <laughs> and said, and he could tell he was tired of being asked about his gun barrel going to be at the beginning. And like, I'm sorry, to me, it was like a big middle finger. It's like, here you well, are, you little no, no, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> right, they're going to give you one, but it's going to be shit. Wouldn't it be better if the white circle would have come up from the corner of the screen, zoomed in on the skull face of that big model, and then That's slowly That's what the script said. The script right. says, oh. yeah. the, uh, you know, the iris, however they called it, opens up on like the eye of the skull and the right. big thing. So so that was what Purvis and Wade and or whoever was involved writing that page of the script said hey, well, one, it, one, one of the things i'm not a fan of in spectre is the music like like skyfall i, I think that uh, thomas newman didn't really uh come up with anything that was good enough but uh, and uh, uh, just a moment because i know what you're going to say but uh, the the music in the pre-titled sequence at least in this segment it, it, i think is pretty good it works well because of the the whole crowd scene and it it's very atmospheric, so uh, uh, generally I'm critical of the music, but this I think does work, and you, you also get snatches of 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 kind of, of um, music going on in in other buildings that you hear, and I think that's quite effective. Well, also Mendes is basically um, copying uh, Orson Welles uh, at the beginning of Touch of Evil. Now. Orson Welles actually did his opening in one take. He took like they apparently had to film all night to get it right. But you know, but I think in the 21st century there are editing tricks you can do uh, to make it appear as if it's all continuous, but it's really not. But yeah. clearly, well, 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 yeah, Mendes, Mendes was so taken by the idea he shot uh, 1917 in supposedly one take. But although it's actually two takes, uh, right? Um, but I think that that's one of the reasons why, for me, the pre-credit sequence. When I went to the theater, I was excited by this. 
I went downhill after that, but I was really <laughs> excited about this just because it's that notion that we're literally following Bond and the movement and what it takes to have everybody coordinated and moving together so that we can get, in a sense, the right positioning on, on camera, even though there's probably editing here and there to make it look like it's just one shot. Like I've always really enjoyed this pre-credit sequence because of the way it's shot, not necessarily the action in it, but how we see it and experience it. Right. And, and it, something, that's always, something that's always bugged me is nobody closes the door, but then it pans around and the door's closed. <laughs> just just a quick good. aside, if you've never seen that's Touch of Evil. That's my biggest problem with this film. If you've never seen Touch of Evil, you should go see it. Whether you saw it. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. I think there are two. I think this opening is comprised of three shots. Yeah, we saw a cut there. And then earlier on, when they walk into the building, the camera kind of lingers on a poster before it moves along. And there must be some kind of digital dissolve there. But you have to really watch for it. I mean, Calvin, you're a professional, so you you can spot these things better than I. But uh, yeah, but I would not argue against anything everyone said about this is a good pre tiles. Yeah. Other than the pretentious ending of the gun barrel but yeah i I don't know there were there just there were warning signals in here i still remember seeing this in the cinema for the first time i mean the flatness of the gun barrel okay whatever the dead or alive really like set me off on a wrong uh, footing and that for yeah and then later on we're gonna i agree with david's comment actually i think the music up to this point has been really nice and i'm gonna also gonna be very critical of the music throughout the rest of the film but specifically in the helicopter later on we'll hear a track that is just the skyfall it's like the end of the film it's the same damn track and that just Uh, um, this is what david warned me off of so i'll say it now so what when we get to the helicopter scene um one of my websites is a uh, 1965 74 show where they didn't have original scores for every episode so like when i was doing the reviews i could tell which ones didn't and which ones did and you could you can just tell when they're recycling music so like in this film at times thomas newman isn't so much a composer as he is a music supervisor going through the music library oh i'll put this here yeah hans zimmer hans zimmer says hold my beer (laughs) (laughs) don't don't get me started hans zimmer we just point out this is the only laser beam in the craig era oh is it (sighs) okay but the the thing is in in 1917 uh it seems to reuse the skyfall track one of the skyfall tracks as well it's so (laughs) noticeable oh that shoulder stock on bond's gun looks familiar but i won't comment (laughs) (laughs) let's get it out of the way What this That's scene fair. actually suggested, at least watching it, I it, I sort of just like open this up and I'm thinking Bond is now on a mission. We've just sort of finished Skyfall and all the personal trilogy drama. He's now going to be sort of a fully formed agent moving forward. And that's what I wanted. And maybe that's what I was reading into, you know, the beginning moments of he, this. He is, but he isn't. He's like, but he's doing it on the instructions of the dead M and he can't tell... You know, he can't tell his living boss what he's up to. It's like, that seems odd. But when you're watching it for the first time, you don't know know that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is you walk into it seeing this and you're like, okay, here's our start alone narrative. Here we go. Bond film. Let's get get moving. And Mm. then it sort of starts looking back and cycling back and reconnecting back. Yeah, it's like there's this huge explosion, and uh, there's not that much panic in the the main square, which is uh, a bit odd. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I remember when my wife saw that this building coming down, uh, she, uh, she she was a bit critical of the special effects because she reckoned that somebody had made it out of um, old cornflake boxes or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've never really uh, enjoyed this pre-credit sequence. I know even people who don't really like the movie very much like this sequence. For me, I think it's Bond makes some very baffling (laughs) moves, decisions. Uh, I think blowing up that building, I know it was accidental, but the fact that he deliberately caused such destruction in a seemingly innocent part of town is quite... And then later on, he's going to get on the helicopter and inexplicably decide (laughs) the best way forward is to uh, knock out the pilot. uh, I was about to say, three blocks away, though, it's like the parade, like nobody seems to have any idea a building just collapsed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and then the backstory to this bit is um, Craig, this is where he hurt his knee before the filming of the scene, mm. so they had to change it so he's walking. Mm. But so they, that's why the cops were all there. They had to get a lot of cops as extras as, at the last minute. But By can, the can, way, just, just real quick, um, in terms of what you guys were talking about, you don't realize that Bond is not just on a mission. I... I got a copy of the script before it came out. I I didn't say anything to anybody because, like, it was the conditions, you know, the Sony had been hacked, whatever. So I didn't want to advertise that one had fallen my way. So I had read the whole script before I saw the film. So anyway, just FYI. Yeah, uh, Calvin, you, you were saying you, you're not sure why, why people like this, even if they're critical of the film overall. I, I think I, I do have the answer to that, and I think it's mm. it's one of the only examples in the recent films where you're you're in um, in you're in an, an environment where you actually feel you're like you're in the country because it's very colourful and it it's kind of like going back to to oh sorry Thunderball and the <laughs> uh, and you know you, you've got the you, 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 it, it's you know a bigger, grander not... junk canoe sequence. Exactly, exactly, and and so it, it takes you somewhere, and mm. uh, yeah. and uh, I, I I agree that you know uh, Bond doesn't necessarily act very well, but it, it it's one of the things that I miss from the recent films is that it, everything's um, Bond moves from place to place so quickly that you never get a chance to actually feel that you're somewhere else. Yeah, but on top of that, David, as well, it's it's places where most of the audience wouldn't even think they would ever go to, like, you know, a snake and a mongoose fight in Madagascar, right? And, or and then, or a, a, an office in Prague, or, you know, go down the list, um, or a quarry in Quantum of Solace. It's like, these aren't places that people would necessarily feel that they could go to. But with this, it's like, yeah, it's a big carnival in Mexico. Yeah, And, yeah. and, and in particular, the aerial shot, which, which we're watching now, it's like you get a sense of scope a sense of scale until we start rehashing the skyfall score here in a minute but anyway uh but yeah no i was i was totally enthralled at this point like and they seem to be executing this very well can i ask you a question calvin yeah sure. do you think that i mean you mentioned bond's poor decisions do you really think that daniel craig's bond makes like really smart decisions over the course of his tenure because like, he kind of makes them very sort of emotional or he'll follow his instinct or his gut and sometimes they're not the best they, i mean they in the end he gets there but like i question a lot of decisions that bond has made so i'm just wondering your thoughts on that 
No, totally. I, I think you're completely right, and particularly coming after Skyfall, when the, the, I mean, basically the whole point of the mission is to keep Emma alive, and he fails at that. And he, he uh, here he's immediately sort of making these very strange decisions. And in Casino Royale, that's a big point of his character arc, that he does make mistakes and that he learns and grows. And at this point, it just seems to be taken for granted that he is going to... <laughs> make some baffling choices just to progress the action along or, or whatever, uh, or fit into whatever thematic, whatever Sam Mendes is trying to, <laughs> trying to go for, which is partly the reason why I think that I heard that Roger Deakins podcast that he was on a month ago or two, where he was talking, he talks quite, uh, candidly actually about this film and sort of saying how he didn't feel like he had a real sort of grasp on the theme or like what the, kind of point of it was and i do wonder if that whole the dead or alive thing at the front of the film was su supposed to be him sort of being like okay this is what i kind of think it's about we're gonna go through it and see what um, you think uh, the filmmakers didn't have a firm grasp on it we yeah. can save with five years of hindsight no and when you see some of well, the we, uh, can, we can say by looking at the emails in the sony hack that they didn't have a yes. reproduction well, yeah, <laughs> because i've got some of them and it's like yeah one of them i saw is like barbara a memo from barbara broccoli said well uh purpose and way to working on uh smoothing over the stuff at the end and meanwhile uh uh, Jez Butterworth is like uh, like smoothing over the first two acts, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, here we are at the money shot in terms of getting the uh, tax breaks from the Mexican government. Because to, to, maximize, to, to maximize a tax break, you have to make Mexico City look great. And well, Mexico it is. City is a very cosmopolitan city now, and, it, yeah. and it's, it's very different to the rest of Mexico. I've been there twice i'm not allowed to go again my wife says never again okay. um because the last time i went i went to a broadcaster and um they had what they called the kill zone outside the uh outside the facility which was two rings of cement walls where 16 year olds with automatic weapons um checked your vehicle for bombs well um, we went through and i was like that's not the mexico that's not the mexico city the mexican government wanted you to see in this film right and and just and just to go back to my point so also part of the Sony hacks, the memo is about maximizing the tax breaks from the Mexican government to like make Mexico City look as good as it possibly can. So then they did a press conference in Mexico City and like Michael G. Wilson gets asked, is this true? Oh, it's not true at all. Like, it's true, Michael. The memos are out there. But like, you know, <laughs> if you like, you know, it's like, well, no, that's not true at all. Like, you know, come on. Gee whiz. Um, Trying not to swear here, but you know, <laughs> I don't know why you try because nobody else bothers. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it, Bill. Just fuck it. Hey, just while we're over the title sequence, should yes. we talk about the song? Um, I adore it. I don't know what everyone else thinks. Uh, Do you adore the song or the performance? Yeah, of both? Uh, both. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not overly keen on him when he does the falsetto sort of stuff. Um, but I, I think it's quite a. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite Bond themes. I listen to it quite regularly. I absolutely love it. I'll say this: like when it first was released, ahead of the movie coming out, I saw some Bond fans like couldn't believe it. This is terrible. I said, "Dude, you get." And, and like I responded to one. This was on Facebook. I said, "You realize the song is from Bond's point of view, right?" No, that can't be. I said, yes, it is. 
listen to the lyrics analyze the lyrics this is from bond's perspective now like whether it's in a falsetto or not doesn't matter Mm. the song is from bond's perspective absolutely yeah, See I, the music do it better when they have a female performer do it. I think. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of the song at all, but I, I, I reckon it it works pretty well in the pre-title sequence. And it did, uh, you know, the thing you that really bug, the thing that really bugs me about the pre-titles, uh, sorry, the title sequence is the is the way the octopus moves because octopuses don't move like that. Right. How about the fact that it gives away the structure of the entire film? <laughs> there's there's that and also oh no never mind just it's uh, Lisa, Lisa, back in the good old days when you can go to the supermarket, um, was this one that you would be walking down the aisles humming and singing? Heck no. I do not like this song at all. When he goes to the high notes, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard to me. And it has nothing to do about the 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 the, the lyrics of it. I just I am not into this song. And I it signals to me just how melodramatic this movie is gonna be. And the movie definitely lives up to it, that it's going to be personal and it's going to be, oh, like I just, give me up-tempo. Give me something (laughs) up-tempo. The purpose of this movie was to basically thread the needle between a classic Bond film and the more emotional, et cetera, the Craig era. And like for the first half, I think it more or less succeeds, but then it falls apart in the second half, which is, something bring up when we do part two of this recording um unfilmed Un- Un- ascend mendes there's another point to this movie which is to make sure that we don't have to wait 10 years for every bomb movie <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is good to see bond getting a bollocking again it's been a while oh hang on no it's every film with gray go <laughs> Do you think he might go rogue? <laughs> <laughs> that would be um, shocking. <laughs> I, mean, I, know, shocking. I, I know we haven't got to it yet, and it's going to be the grand finale, but The Man with the Golden Gun is, I think, the only the film in the series where just M is just hostile to Bond, the whole film, just mm. berating him. Um, <laughs> this don't, is a second Don't criticize point. The Man with the Golden Gun, James. I'm not, it's not a criticism. Not I'm just saying it's like if, if no, you're I'm, I'm an employee, you if you're an employee, in case, in case you go there. No, if you're an employee and you fuck up, you expect to get reprimanded, and I don't think we see enough of it. Because we go from this off the back of Skyfall, they were all warm and fuzzy for each other. Now he's getting bollocking. By the end of the movie, he's like, "Oh yeah, we're good. He's here. We're fine." Okay. Uh so, okay, so, so okay, so Bond's blowing off M, his boss, the one who's alive, the one he like theoretically works for. Like, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing oh, for crying out loud. I, I just don't get the tone of the scene when they come off the back of Skyfall, having found yes. commonality with each other and yes. started a relationship, and it's just like all the way back to the start again. It's, well, you don't know what's happened. You don't know what's happened in the five. No, yeah. how many years was it? Three years. Three years. It also, God, expensive in those days, they only had three-year gaps. God. Also, also the dozen rewrites <laughs> that probably happened between the first draft and filming of this scene. So, I mean, here's a here's a question for you. Well, my one question is, what do you think of Ralph Fiennes as M? But seeing um, Moriarty 
<laughs> Andrew Scott in this film. Like his casting to me is a spoiler. Like well, I see well, him in well, this film and I'm yeah, like, hang on, gonna be, um, okay, I'm like, sorry. I, I see him in this film and I actually like in my mind after watching the Sherlock film, think to myself, he's going to be a villain. And so for me, I think the casting itself is a disappointment because I, I just expect him to play that negative role. And I think that's something maybe that we need to, like if you're going to sort of surprise me with a potential villain, maybe surprise me with the casting and have it be somebody unexpected. So that's just my point about that. The surprise was supposed to be that M was the villain. But then Ray Fine says, I've been a villain in all the Harry Potter movies. Like, no, I'm not. You know, like, get somebody else. Mm. Yeah, well, one I think of, that was especially the, true in the UK, wasn't it? Because I mean, everybody knew Sherlock, and it was yeah. just super big. Oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, you know. it's yeah, it, it's just telegraphed. And same with you know uh, Christoph Waltz as Blofeld later on. It's like you don't play, you don't cast Christoph Waltz to play Mister. We've never heard your name before, Oberhauser. Uh-huh. You know, he he's obviously <laughs> going to be the big guy. And I think casting to type, you know, Javier Bardem, uh, No Country for Old Men, very famous for that. The you know around the time of uh, Skyfall, still, and that worked. I think in a lot of cases it can work, but it doesn't work with Andrew Scott because we're supposed supposed to be some kind of mystery there i think i don't think we're supposed to think of him as a villain from the well old. he was he was the he was the re, the reveal of him of the head of mi5 being the baddie was the original finale when the scooby-doo gang were basically trying to get a presentation by him stopped the powerpoint stopped because they're about to reveal something yeah. it was a really weird ending and that's when his that's when you know was the names on the passports were different i mean it's just yeah and that was Lo, john logan's first pass at it i'm yeah. sorry i got a phone call just as i was making my point so yes uh m Ray Fiennes was supposed to be the villain. That was going to be the big reveal. And then Ray Fiennes says, forget it. I'm not going to do this movie. Like at this point, like, you know, he, he's got a lot of money. He can like, he can walk away if he wants to. So it's like, no, no, Rafe, you got to stay. So then they rewrote it. So then they invented this character with, you know, the C character. And so then they cast, you know, the most obvious villain character you could have, it, villain actor you could have. Um, yeah. So this is, you know what? Yeah. But it's look, like dominoes because then the consequence of doing that was yes. they had to come up with this entire subplot about MI5 and MI6. Right. Um, merging, which is the, this, this, the C plot of this film, yeah, which is and, totally and, unnecessary. And at the end of the film, it's almost like M is just the head of the 007, sec- the 00 section. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, he's not even the head of the double o- yeah that actually that is a good way to put it he's basically the head of about a five four or five person department <laughs> just although there is a brief video where he's like saying goodbye to the staff so i guess it's broader than that but it's just it, it, you know it's just this movie was like jinxed i think from the beginning no mm-hmm. pun intended but um they made their bed mm-hmm. yeah well, one of the things I don't like about C, though, it really bothers me when I see him, is that he can't be bothered to shave, and he's hardly got anything to shave, and it's just like, uh, you know, it's like a 14-year-old boy when he gets a, a bit of... Uh... It's a, a three-week growth of beard. Well, you actually make a good point, David, because, I mean, in, real, in the real world, he, would, he wouldn't be even up for that job. No. 
he wouldn't have had the experience in the field. He wouldn't have been running sections overseas. And if you look, if you look at the real world heads of MI5 and SIS, they're all in their sixties and seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think the character's believable at all. So, yeah. by by the way, Bond was looking at these documents, and this is supposed to be very solemn. So apparently, if you look closely, and we're beyond that now, it establishes Bond's birth date was nineteen seventy one, and of course, Craig was born in nineteen. Um, well, that's all in the Casino Royale. When, when, when Sony issued the press materials for Casino Royale, yeah. you dig deep into that. Yeah. There's the whole new biography of Bond. And right. Everything it, 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 it was on, the, it was on the, the website, I think. Oh, we, yeah, Royale. we've got it on our website. You can find it. And yeah. um, it was like they transitioned him to be a member of the SBS and stuff. It was actually really well right. done. But yeah. my point in, in this film is they've now changed the date to 1971. Because because this film is supposed to take place, it, they don't specify, but like shortly after Skyfall, uh, it's like well, yeah, maybe a few weeks. He wasn't sitting on that video message for three years. No. <laughs> Can I say something that I actually do like about this film and I wish that they really pushed more so? Instead of the whole like, Blofeld's your brother, stepbrother, whatever. I like yeah. the premise of... of um, Asking the question, you know, I feel like in the Brosnan era, we had, you. do we need James Bond? And the answer is emphatically yes. I like the idea of asking, do we need the double O section? And I like the idea of questioning this sort of the, the, the surveillance programs that are happening. I think that this is a natural extension to what happened in Skyfall and really sort of asking that question of, do we need the technology? You had sort of the binary or sort of the, the, the difference between, say, Q, who was at the computer, Bond, who was on the ground. And I think this is taking that one level further and saying, do we still need these types of agents or can we actually safeguard the UK and its global interests simply from our computers? And it really challenges like the limitations of that type of technology and it creates more barriers. When M talks about, uh, Judy Dench's M talks about the world being more opaque, is it more transparent? I feel as though this film is really sort of grappling with in a very transparent mm-hmm. world, how, how, sort of like the people in power the ones who are more opaque. So I think there's a lot of stuff in here that's really interesting and very timely. I just feel as though it gets a little bit weighted down by the whole who we're going to make Blofeld in his relationship with Bond. And if you cut that crap out for me, um, I think I really would have tapped more into just sort of this sort of element, this this plot point, which I think is a really interesting concept. Mm. And I think if you you like the the whole internal struggle about is the double section relevant and do we need these kind of people? I'd recommend if you haven't seen it, um, listeners pull up, um, late seventies TV show called the sandbaggers. It's all on YouTube. And it was written by, um, an ex Royal Navy off intelligence officer. And it is more close to Fleming's setup for MI6, where it's like a couple of guys that have a secretary, they share an office and they, uh, there's only a handful of people in the whole section. Um, and they go and do all the dirty work for the government and it's constantly the government trying to get rid of them, but then they need them. And it's that constant, you know, friction between, well, we've got to get our hands dirty, but we don't want to admit it. Um, back and forth and it's well, it's really 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 good well also i kind of thought that issue was settled with skyfall because judy dench tells the uh committee of parliament like you know yeah we need double o types and then that seemed to settle the argument but like oh well, yeah, argument it was, again 
it's just like Quantum of Solace following on from Casino Royale. It's like, oh, people really liked Casino Royale and the kind of stuff that we did in that. So let's just do a bit more of that. And it's the same here. It's like, oh, Skyfall was really popular and we made a lot of money out of it. Let's just do another one, basically, and bring things. You know, they had to bring Judy Dench back earlier on. And when I was in the cinema, I geeked out at that because I love Judy Dench as M. I think she's the best M that the series has ever had. And yet to to bring to feel the need to bring her back to have some relevance to this story just shows that they're not quite letting you go. Well, and, and on, also... On, 20, we, we're on just 26 now, is going to have the DB5 and the ghost of Judy Dench. I was going to say, and now, and, now we're, and now we're seeing they're rebuilding the DB5 again. Like, <gasps> the whole point of Skyfall was to, you know, it's like, it's the end of the DB5. It's like your... Mo- you know, it's never the end of the DB5. Yeah, obviously. There are some cut scenes here, aren't there, where, where Bond says to Q, just... When you rebuild it, make sure you build it on a on a uh, on a BMW chassis and an <laughs> engine, so I, I can really uh, I can really let take, her go, yeah. really open her go. up. <laughs> and yeah, it would be also good if like make the headlights bigger and put the he- put the machine guns in there instead of the little <laughs> machine guns at the bumper. And but also- I think it's. I think it's sort of, sorry, sorry, Calvin, just to sort of throw something in here. Like, I think that what the first three films did were, I mean, I've argued that they're revisionists. They break down the Bond formula. They are sort of trying to reintroduce and give origin stories. And I really felt that that ended quite definitively at the end of Skyfall. And when Mm. I read this film, I I hope that we would be forward looking. But when I watched this film, I kept thinking it's very backward looking. So we have to bring back the DB5. We got to bring back Judy Dunch. We keep having to sort of, look back, bring back, and I found it to be very reversionist, very yeah, backward-looking. They, they, they need to ditch the DB5. I mean, I, yeah, I, I would have been happy ridiculous. without it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I think, Lisa, I think what you touched I think it was Lisa, actually, sorry if it was someone else, um, about kind of uh, making this your classic Bond film from back in the day, but with the emotional kind of resonance of the Craig era to this point. And I think the pre-credit sequence leads you to believe that that is going to be the case. And yet, like, we get to the the Q scene, for example, and it's like, the first time we've had a Q scene in, like, 13 years, like a proper, you know, we're in his lab, there's people tinkering around with gadgets and stuff, Mm and Bond picks up a gun and Q takes it off him and that's kind of it. This thing with the uh, the bottle is is quite nice and Bond's taken the Aston Martin, but I, I just don't... Sam Mendes is not the kind of director that's going to give you fun, right. basically. Assum- assuming, assuming he's on the cross-channel ferry before we get to Rome. The less exotic part of Bond's just, trip just, just talking about Rome before we get into all the car chase and everything. I, I, I did... Um, I, I, I actually did a, a, a shot by shot um, breakdown of everything that he does in, in the car. And uh, it's, um, and in fact, there, there was only one, one view that I, I, I couldn't manage to locate where it was. And because uh, it, 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 it's funny, because the, 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 the car chase just, or, or every, everything. Hard drive. <laughs> the hard drive. Yeah, yeah everything, um, whenever he's in the car, uh, it, it, it just jumps from this point of Rome to another point, and there's there's no logic to the geography at all, but uh, it, it, it looks pretty good. It's just and this is a and this is and this is a museum because they couldn't get rights to shoot at the. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Mausoleum. Yeah. Meanwhile, we, we just I, I just want to make this point. So, is part of the publicity? Oh. 
Uh, we heard about, oh, Bond for the first time, a Bond uh-huh. woman who's age appropriate, like she's uh-huh. in it for, I uh, I don't have a stopwatch on me to get a precise time. She's in it for maybe five minutes. We're talking about Monica Bellucci. And it's like, she's not the primary Bond woman. And it's just like, it was ridiculous. But this was... This was the Eon publicity department at work, and like all these entertainment reporters went hook, line, and sinker, and it's just like, whereupon the primary Bond woman is 17 years younger than Bond is in terms of the actor and actress. So it's like, what, the, what was the point of this? Why did you do this? You didn't have to do this, but they do it. And... You know, oh, I've, the, I've got some thoughts on this, Bill. Thank you for thank you for opening the door to talking about Bond. Up, yeah. oh, like, I'm just like, first I've of te- all. <laughs> I've teed up the golf ball and you have the driver now, so go at it. I am so incredibly frustrated by her by her role in this. First of all, it's Monica freaking Bellucci. Give her something substantial to do in a film other than- Should have been in Tomorrow Never Dies. But even more so than that, like she to me plays a very sort of limited role. She is just here to be eye candy and sleep with Bond. And yes, women who are, you know, in their late 40s, early 50s are beautiful and sexual. And I can sort of be on that train, but she really doesn't have any role or purpose. And so when I saw her casting and I saw this, I'm like, she's going to come back later, right? And when she didn't come back later, I got all upset. And I was like, you want to know what? If you really want to hook me into this film, make her Blofeld. That might be my unpopular opinion, but have her be somebody who sleeps with Bond, makes him think that she's sort of weak and helpless, and then come back and like, you know, drive the nail into him. Like that to me would have made this, made the film in my opinion, but I'm just so frustrated by your representation. I was about to say, Paula in Thunderball has more to do than that this character does <laughs> because Monica at least because, because at least Paula's peril forces Bond to like invade Largo's uh, mansion or whatever. Uh, this is like, he's, you know, That's she's the great. The great reveal of no time to die is that the reason Bond has to go to Cuba is because Monica Bellucci is now living with Felix Leiter and he won't, and she won't let him go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I agree with what, what you said completely about her being underused, but I, I love this scene. I, I think the scenes she, she's in are, are fantastic. They're some of the best scenes in the film. Mm, I agree. I think this I, is – and I, I, know, I know there's a lot of issues, uh, rightly, with what's going to happen after this bit, but yes, yeah, yeah. This bit. I think this is the most Fleming-y bit, one of the most Fleming-y bits of the Craig era post-Casino Royale. Because mm. she thinks she knows she's about to be killed. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I, I love it. it. It's fantastic. This 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 scene. Mm, agreed. I was really hoping she'd be Blofeld when the casting yes! information came out. I was like, because I thought it's so obvious that it would be Christoph Waltz. They won't uh-huh. possibly do that. I was I was pretty certain it was going to be Monica Bellucci, and then I was very disappointed when it wasn't. My my other thought when uh, um, Waltz was cast, it's like he's a decoy, and it'd be like some anonymous staff guy would yeah. really be Blofeld <laughs> like yeah. his assistant. Yeah. We, we even, see later in the film. Even Andrew yeah. Scott, even though you, you, you yeah. know, we, we know that he is going to be a villain, but he's, right. you know, probably le- I thought my reasoning was that he would be less obvious to a bigger portion of the audience than Christoph Waltz, for example. Right. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought it was going to be Monica Bellucci first, Andrew Scott second, Christoph Waltz third. Well, just- the, in the John Gardner series, 
Ah, um, yes. Blofeld's daughter. Blofeld's daughter. Yes. It, it becomes Blofeld. Four Nina, special services. Nina becomes Blofeld, uh, the head of Spectre. And, yes. um, tr- and and does what you say, Lisa. She plays the weak part. You know, she pretends to be weak. She sleeps with Bond. She manipulates them and then turns out right. to be the big bad. And they could have just could have done that. And it's actually fairly shocking as you read it. At least it seemed to me in 1982 when that book came out. Now this film, the scene where he backs her up against the window, that's not so great, but speaking only for myself. No, I still can't get over the pin in his collar. It's like, oh, come on. I've seen this film so, so like rarely that I have no idea what they're even saying to each other. I don't even know what her purpose of this is. Uh, He's saying, I'm going to shag you is basically what he's saying. (laughs) This is all to facilitate her saying, go here next. Uh, Yeah. Okay. But but it it could have been done so much better. Oh, yes. Goodness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, He could have made her an omelette. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and two bottles of wine <laughs> uh, I mean is it is it the first time we see I'm thinking maybe Severine but you didn't really get information out of Severine like is this the first time we've seen Craig's Bond seduce a woman for, no he did it with Solange in Casino Royale uh, except he left her yeah they didn't sleep together yeah. left, left her on the floor oh true yeah actually you know goes through with it hmm which uh well never mind you said goes through with it like it would be some terrible thing no (laughs) i'm not saying well i'm not saying that i was uh, well all right i'll I'll come out and say it you know suggesting that uh maybe that line in skyfall about do you think this is my first time maybe craig's bond is bisexual Mm. well the other thing is in, in casino royale originally um let's just say he he gets Solange to you know anyway it goes a lot further in the original um, before the cut. Um, that's why she gets up to kind of freshen up and stuff, and that's why he's on the phone. But it doesn't make much sense in the film when the way they edited it down. Mm. So, mm. meanwhile, also as part of the publicity for this, like Craig made a point of saying Bond is misogynist. He said it in press interviews, and it's like. Maybe this is me rationalizing it. I've thought of long thought of Bond as chauvinist, but like six and a half minutes was the answer to the question, Lisa. Six and a half minutes. Okay, but 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 meanwhile, misogynist actually means hates women. Uh, Personally, I don't think Bond hates women. Doesn't always treat them the best, but like, and maybe I'm again, maybe I'm rationalizing it. But like, Craig says he's a misogynist. Like, well. The star is playing and says he's misogynist, therefore he must be. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, one of the other things, uh, I, I actually agree with you on that, uh, Bill, and maybe Lisa can um, uh, respond to that. But uh, one of the other reasons I, th- I think that the, the scenes with Monica Bellucci work very well is that... Um, I don't know if it's totally, but mainly the music is is classical, and uh, it's not Thomas Newman, and I, I think <laughs> that makes a huge difference. 
By the way, I'm, I'm not going to believe I'm going to do this. Let me make a quick defense of Thomas Newman in the sense I think he is a very talented composer. I don't think he's a good fit for Bond, but he is a very good composer. And he's part of a Hollywood dynasty of film well, composers. You know, you know the problem with that, though, Bill, is if you know you're not suited to something, don't take the You job. shouldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's – but paychecks look really good when you're – I don't think he should have money. Can I just respond to Bill's question um, about misogyny? Misogyny doesn't just simply mean like hatred towards women. It, it's it's actually like you got to take that down like a couple of levels. It could be dislike of women, prejudice against them, or even just sort of contempt for them. And so you don't actually have to go to the full street, like the full high bias of hatred uh, in order to be misogynistic. You can just sort of have like a really strong bias or dislike against them. Um, well, just, just to be clear. Just to throw that in there. Well, just to be clear, I was like going to Webster's for that. So, and and it's like a very murky area. I, I, I would absolutely agree with that. But like, does Bond really hate women? You know, it, anyway, no, just, I, 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 I think I, I've got a sense that the, 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 the actual, the, the usage of the word has changed, but, uh, you know. That I agree with. I, th- I think it definitely mm-hmm. has agreed because um, – I go back to that uh, one uh, Moonraker um, script, the first draft, where um, Bond, you know Bond and Holly are flying the uh, mini jets, and it's like, oh, Holly, uh, can you handle this? And then she turns her mini jet upside down. Yeah, I, I can handle it. So like, there's definitely been a um, element of chauvinism for a long time with the Bond series. I would not debate that at all. <sighs> Misogyny is like a really harsh word, but Lisa, you may be right. I may be wrong. I'm. I'm not. It's just it. When, when, when I, was when was Webster's definition written by whom? Uh, by Webster, I believe, and a long time ago. By a dude, so, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. going to recut this scene as a Zoom call. <laughs> I'd actually love to see that. I was just going to say actually about this. It's going to be on mute for the first bit of it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, th- this scene is obviously supposed to be kind of like an aping of what we had in Skyfall, which was Javier Bardem Silva's introduction, which is absolutely fantastic. That one take, him delivering that story, all, like this is supposed to be our big introducing the villain moment and i think it falls so flat like yes. i could it's, sense it's, the it's, lack of energy in the cinema i saw this film four times in the cinema and every single time this just kind of fell so flat and it's blow like i know that the long silences and all that kind of stuff is supposed to be ominous and suspenseful it's not it just why why aren't you speaking <laughs> why, why do you need your assistant to put the microphone all of you know 10 centimeters in front of you it's ridiculous I was about to say, it's also an aping of the uh, boardroom scene in Thunderball. Thunderball. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because it's it's our first Spectre boardroom scene in however many years. And, and even, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Thunderball, but it completely fails in that regard. I mean, in Thunderball, that's actually quite a fun scene. And, you know, he, you know, takes out one of his subordinates in a. I, I, it would have been be- better done in a Ken Adams style set, I think. Yes. Yeah. Also, also, we're about to have a little CGI when Hinks comes out, like the. Uh, his thumbnail, the metal on over his thumb, which they cut so from the film, which they cut from the film for the censors. The censors did not like the metal thumb thumbnails. Yeah, oh, it was too sadistic. To no metal, no, and metal, they were metal, metal and they stainless they, steel, I think. But the um, the rough cut they sent to the censors said it was too sadistic, so they took it out. Huh. 
Can I ask a question about your opinion on the way that this is shot? I think that like a lot of like the next little portion of the film, I just don't think it's shot well or conceptualized Mm. well. Like they're really trying to do the whole shadowy thing, but it's so like, I I just, I don't buy it. I don't know if it's just because it's just the way that. Uh, Yeah, we're we're a secret criminal organization. Let's hold a meeting in a huge, um, huge palace in the middle of Rome. (laughs) And I'll be in shadow. Like very, uh, very briefly, they did like a little silver thing on his thumbnail. So so they still like snuck it in a bit. Oh, he's and he's blinding the guy. But like, but the guy he's killing is like he doesn't look that impressive, physical specimen to begin with. So like. Big deal, Hanks. You killed a a smaller guy. For those that are into cinematography, um, Mm -hmm. everybody's sitting at the same table at the same level, right? But they try and force the kind of Thunderbolt boardroom where Blofeld is elevated but screened effect. Because when they cut to Blofeld, the horizon of the edge of the table is halfway up the screen. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of shooting, trying to shoot up at him, right, to make him look more senior. And then when they cut to anybody else, the the horizon of the table is a lot lower, and it's kind of... But the the camera's in the same place. It's just the framing of the shot. They've tried to change the geography of the set. (laughs) My point is, it's like, you failed in the design of the set yes. and they try to fix it in the way they shot it. And it just doesn't work. Yeah. Just yes. Doesn't. And in Sorry. the casting of the man, like, I mean, you know, no, actually I, I think every previous Blofeld has had uh, something, a, a more uh, appealing element than Christoph Waltz, who is quite a small man. And he does it. He doesn't bring his, you know, he, I think he's a fantastic actor. Glorious Bastard is one of my favorite films. I think he's amazing mm-hmm. in it here. He's just, Maybe he didn't have... He's he's dwarfed by the set, for one thing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and here's the odd thing. It's like the best interpretation of Blofeld, in my opinion, is Anthony Dawson. You can't see see his face. With with Eric Pullman as his voice. Yes. And And he's wearing a plain suit. And it's like he is so mis- you know it's very mysterious. And it's just like it, it, having having got the rights to the character back. Why didn't they play it like that? Mm. Yeah. Well, and and also like you know like hold on to it, like put it to put it off to the drawer and just like let's let's work out the whole quantum thing. Yeah, look, thing. look like, after the character. Just just develop him somehow over over a number of films instead of just basically wasting rushing it. it. Yeah, rushing, rushing it and wasting it. In, it yeah. Yeah, I and okay, so we're now in the car drive as I call it. And so like this <laughs> is like, this could this could have been fantastic. It really could have uh, been fantastic. Th- this is this is one of two scenes and we'll get to the other in part 2. So with this the whole attitude of this movie in the production was, well, with Skyfall, we made a billion dollars. We'll surely make a billion and a half so we can spend as much as we want. And like, so they gave, Eon gave the Daily Mail, excuse me, the Mail on Sunday, access to the production of this scene. And they spent 24 million pounds, which was $36 million at the exchange rate at the time. And like they were bragging about the amount of money they were spending, and a lot of it had to do with all the spare Aston Martins and Jaguars. Let's be and, realistic; it was about the money they had to cut the checks of all the different bureaucrats in Italy. Well, regardless, but they're bragging that, about that the, money, the amount of money they're spending, and it's just like, and it's like you watch this scene; it's like 
boring. It's 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 yes, it's boring. It's like half the it's half the budget of of many other films, and it's it's just ridiculous. And I want to just take a little break. Well. Bond's going to take a little break from this important car chase to make a call and say, uh, shout out to my friend Michael who I went to school with, high school with, who got in touch with me 20 years later after he saw my picture at the premiere on Facebook saying, oh yeah, I helped engineer the gearbox for that Jaguar car. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I was about to say there was, there was another Bond website that commenting about this scene said, well, some people thought this was supposed to be a spectacular car shape car chase but it's really supposed to be like exposition dialogue and you don't get that no well the reason <laughs> I, I i guess the reason i didn't get that is because eon did all this publicity about all the bloody money they're spending for this scene it's like you don't spend 36 million dollars for and exposition so, right, and a car chase is supposed to be exciting let's put a phone call in the middle of it and cut to money penny yeah but the argument that it's exposition is just like some it feels to me like you know like you know you know feel like people who are cinephiles being like well if you don't get this you know this is supposed to be a car chase sequence i'm supposed to be um excited by it i'm supposed to be having like feelings inside of my body during action sequences action sequences actually cause physiological reactions when they are done right i feel nothing about this it is shot so poorly and it's edited so poorly it's slow and it's boring my circulation my circulation is supposed to be about 10 points or 20 points higher at this point whatever nothing for this anyway anyway, point of reference what's what's the point of hinks who's chasing bon gang ahead of him like what's, what's, what's his plan there? He doesn't um, know. And, and here's knows. the thing: the, the Bond franchise has history of this, recent history of this. When they, the, when they edited Die Another Day, and the American editors interspersed the Ice Palace car chase with the shots of Jinx trying to like get out of her hotel room and completely killed the momentum of that scene. They knew they fucked that one up, and yeah, we'll have another go at trying to do that again. I think even well, that, I, in the, even in that case, it's like you know, Jinx trying to get out of the room. There's still some excitement involved there. It's like it's a character. I, you yeah. know, she's a hero. I want her to live. Whereas here, it's you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to see the Vic Armstrong cut of that sequence, and I can tell you, it plays differently. Oh really? Oh, okay. oh and yeah. also, I was about to say, anybody who says, "Well, you don't get it," it's like you're being an apologist for the series. That's what it really is. Mm. And uh, if you don't like that comment, well. And and I I also just want to comment on the the kind of exposition that we're seeing for fans like us who know these films so well and this kind of thing. It's like they're trying to shove an awful lot of like so much linking back to the previous films in the series. Mr. White's in there. I believe we see Dominic Green in there and Patrice from Skyfall and stuff. It's like it's quite a, a moment of exposition for a Bond film. It's like, oh, okay, this film is not just about what the plot that's going on in here. It's about it's bringing in all of these elements from the previous ones. And I think for Bond fans like us, that's like that's quite a lot to take in, actually. That oh, okay, this film is doing something very different to what previous ones had, and and that's an extra level of kind of uh, uh, understanding that uh, that you need to have for the scene. Two things during the filming of Skyfall, John Logan said Bond should fight Blofeld, so everyone was excited. Oh, in Skyfall, Blofeld's going to be in. Well, he wasn't, but I think that betrayed where. John Logan was thinking, and then he sold them the idea of doing two films consecutively, where the idea was to like tie it all in. Secondly, like this was 
the first time where the Bond series, which has been known for like following trends set by other series, let's do Marvel. Let's make it all a one continuous thing. Uh, on that point, Bill, breaking news today, I saw the very first instance of somebody saying that there were things in Spectre that they're going to retcon for No Time to Die. Like there were things that they would have going to write about Spectre, but they they held it back because they knew it was going to be the next film. I'm like, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Because Sorry, because Paul, you know who you are, that right? But, but you know that was what John Logan sold them, and there was like you can go back. I can find it. Um, John Logan sold them this idea about doing two consecutive films, making a two part arc, and. Um, yeah, so I mean that's the origin of them deciding to go the Marvel route of a big, long, continuous arc. Although, when you again, when you go to the uh, main titles of this film, they barely reference Quantum of Solace because it's like they're still kind of like <laughs> no one likes that one, <laughs> including them. <laughs> that's that most importantly. <clears throat> Can so, I ask a question? I know we just sort of saw Money Penny working from home. Any yeah. thoughts on? I, I mean, I've got. Oh, that's a BBC photographer that just happened to be at the Tiber. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any? I mean, I've got. I've got feelings about how she's portrayed at the end. Any thoughts on the fact that you know? her relationship with bond is taking place outside of the office that she's brought to his apartment and she's working at, you know, her apartment at home. Any thoughts on her framing as being outside of the inner sanctum of MI6 and being sort of brought into this? Well, uh, this is a very superficial comment, but if you look at her hairdo in this film versus what it was in Skyfall, it's like, uh, very plain. It's like very odd. It's, I realize three, three years have passed between the two, but it's like, it's. Oh, and, and here's very Bond's weird. only friend in the Secret Service dobbing him in to his boss. Yeah. I'm not even sure it's a friend. It's like he blackmailed him. It's like. Um, <laughs> well, don't forget, I mean, in the draft of. <laughs> the film Tanner was going to commit suicide. Bomb was going to watch, right? Um, oh God, I forgot about that. Oh yeah. my God, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. To, to, um, to, to, yeah, sorry, James. I was going to say on the money penny thing. So in in Skyfall, she's called Eve the whole way through until the end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Lisa, we've talked about it on previous podcasts where the female characters and bonds tend to go with first names, and the men, the, the male characters have last names, right? Yeah. Is, which is so actually why, goes beyond Bond films, but yes. Why then in Bond's phone does he have a as Money Penny in the context? Just Money Penny. Surely it would be Eve. Um, because the person charged with programming the phone, for the, the prop department just you know missed it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I think specifically with Money Penny, it's always been Miss Money Penny, and Eve was a way to sort of distract from the fact that she was supposed to be Money Penny. And mm. I think it's just because there's the commonality of her name, whereas most other women, even in terms of like even today, talking about you know the women of Bond, it tends to be women by first name still, and men by their last name. Mm. Yeah, it's it's an. I, I just I just think he would I think he would have her in her phone in, in his Eve. phone as Eve. Yeah, I agree with you there. By the way, in terms of first name, last name, except when you have the script for uh, Casino Royale, where it's like two thirds of the way it says Bond, and then suddenly in the last third it says James. 
Right. Now, there's a theory that that was Paul Haggis was. Those represent the scenes that Paul Haggis rewrote, where it says James instead of Bond. But or the fact that he's presented as a Bond Bond girl hybrid, and so he's actually being represented in the script through sort of the way that we typically talk about women in the world of Bond. Like I, I get your Paul Haggis thing. I'm not. describing that i'm just saying another possible like interpretation from the outside is he's being presented in the same way that women typically are i have never seen all the bond scripts but casino royale is the first one i i ever saw where it said james instead of bond just FYI. I want to. I want to know where you get these security cameras from that have big red lights on. Well, this actually gets <laughs> this actually gets back into the main plot of the film, which we'll get into more in part one. I'm sorry, in part two. But it's like, okay, Spectre has this plot, and if they succeed, oh, they'll be able they'll be able to eavesdrop on everyone. But they seem to have that ability right now, and uh, except in South Africa. Yeah. And my point being, it's like, what are the main faults of this film is I don't get the stakes. I don't get what, what is Spectre doing and how is it different from what they can do right now? Mm. Yeah. I think we'll get into that more in the next Absolutely. Uh, We we will, but we'll get to that countdown. (laughs) But I, but I can't help mention it right now because yeah yeah. Yeah. bill what's that news blog that started years ago where the guy just like copies headlines and slaps them up oh god Um, you know what i'm talking about right yeah we're uh there's something the judge report that's what yes yes that's what i always think about when i see mr white with all of his tv screens (laughs) yes yes Just oh, being haggard oh, and the world's going to end. Oh, meanwhile, Mr. White is dying of radiation poisoning, but he he has all his hair. Well, that's good. Like <laughs> most radiation victims don't have all their hair, but. Well, okay. if he was bald, we might mistake him for Blofeld <laughs> in the promotional <laughs> material. Maybe so. it's a week. That's true. That's yeah. true. And also, at some point in the intervening years between Quantum and this, he had like appeared to talk in bad terms about the Bond films. But he then, did. He called them shit. Yeah, but then yeah, but, yeah, but he, he, he was he, he was joking. It, it, it was clear that he was joking when he said that. Yeah, wow. it was comments taken out of context. Yeah. I think anyway. Uh, Maybe uh, you know, and you know, <laughs> money. Uh, will, will you come money, back? Money always helps. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he probably got a quite a good payout for this. Like they couldn't have done it without him. Which actually, you know, goes back to uh, how uh, Cubby Broccoli negotiated versus how. Barbara Broccoli negotiates because Cubby Broccoli was known for like negotiating like really, really hard. Like there were like sometimes really hard feelings before the actor finally accepted or didn't accept. But in this one, it's like, you want some money? Oh, here's some. Well, I'd like a little more. Oh, here's some more. And <laughs> that seems to be how they negotiate. Like Sam Mendes, oh, Skyfall. Oh, I can't do another Bond film. Oh, here's double the salary. Oh, I could do one. Yeah, and then, um, then it's uh, Michael G. Wilson gets on the phone to MGM saying, "Well, we've just had to bump the budget up another fifty million, and yeah. the production by a year." Yeah, yeah. because so just, they had to wait for him to be available. So, um, just on Mr. White, James, I think you posted mm-hmm. a tweet uh, not that long ago about this sort of like, you know, when we all saw the end of Casino Royale, did we think that the man crying, <laughs> crawling up towards Bond's feet, would someday be the 
Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious how people feel about him being brought back here. It was obviously a bit of a loose end from Quantum. I think we probably talked about the uh, the deleted uh, the, or the original ending um, that was mm. supposed to be Bond going after him, and yeah. yet here he is in a in a much more expanded and quite significant role for what I, he I, I really he like him as a character, but I, I I don't think it's the right way to go to make him uh, Bond's father-in-law. It's, yeah, uh, it, it, it's just uh, I've, I've, I've talked about this before that you know it, it's one of the problems with a lot of the, the, the filmmaking generally now and especially origins movies that they try and to they try to tie up uh, so many loose ends to to make everything fit, but in reality, people's lives aren't that tidy. You know, everyone's mm. lives. Are, it, it, Everyone's lives are just full of loose ends, so you just let the loose ends go. And to, to actually, it's one of the things that just irritates me about um, about orange, origins movies generally is that how much they try and tie everything together and make it nice and neat because it, it, life doesn't work like that, and it, it it's just uh, lazy filmmaking, I think. Mm. Mm. I think some of this has to do, and again, um, we're recording this the day after Diana Rigg has passed, and I watched yesterday uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and I've always felt as though the goal of this was to put him in the position of Draco and put Madeline Swan in the position of of Tracy DiVincenzo. And I feel as though Madeline Swan is a composite of all these other sort of familiar archetypes. Mm-hmm. And then you put everything together like a Lego figure and you say, she's the right one for Bond. And for me, I, that's the only reason, that's how I read this. I don't read it as, you know, bringing back anything bigger, just trying to replicate just the the, the model or the archetype of Bond's first wife. Mm. Well... I'll, I'll I'll take that a step further. In the script, um, the script ends with Bond saying, "We have all the time in the world." That didn't make the final. In the, uh, I think it was a teaser trailer. They were playing the theme of um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think Leia Sadu got the part because she was blonde, and Tracy in the novel was blonde. Mm-hmm. So well, they hire another brunette after. I, I, I think the intent was. She's supposed to be Tra- um, Leia Sadu is supposed to be Tracy 2.0. She's supposed to be the Tracy for the Daniel Craig era. Yeah. I can just imagine at the wedding, like friends of the family oh, come and, die, and they come up to Bond and they say, How did you guys meet? Well, funny story. I watched <laughs> Bond kill himself and I found a picture of her in his wallet. And I just I knew then she was the one for me. John Clark, haphazard stuff. He did a uh, he did one of his uh, Bond videos. He does a lot of non-Bond videos, but at some point he he dug up this clip of Barbara Broccoli saying, "Oh yeah, uh, Vesper is Bond's true love." And then then he had a clip of uh, Diana Rigg from Honor Match's Secret Service with the sound effect of a vinyl record going, okay. you know, just. <laughs> um, yeah, well, different continuity. It, it is a different continuity. There's no question about that. My point being, it's like she is supposed to be Tracy 2.0. Yeah. And now whether that plays out that? with. Why not just do that rather than, I mean, if they've used Vesper and they'd redid Casino, why not just yes. reinvent Tracy? But they don't, but they, for some reason, don't want to do that. They don't want to acknowledge that, put it that way. They don't want to be honest about that. 
and I think they write they write themselves into a corner with how they're gonna because like with Tracy and Vesper, two amazing actresses, I think some of the best co-stars of the entire series. I think they're absolutely fabulous. You completely buy the chemistry, um, and 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 you fall in love with them yourself as an audience member. I think they're absolutely terrific. Mm-hmm. Here with Leia Sadu, I think she's she's very weak, and I feel that the characters. Bond has fun with Tracy and Vesper. We see them courting. We see them sort of, uh, we see chemistry. Here, Leia Sadu is about to be introduced in a scene in a moment. In her first scene, she has to deal with the knowledge that her dad is dead. And then she needs to carry that kind of emotion through into the next few yeah, scenes. Yeah. And I feel uh, like that kind I, of I, I, I know, yeah, A lot of people are critical of her in this. And uh, I, I do agree that she's not the, the best um Bond woman, but uh, I, I think a lot of it is is not her performance so much as the structure of the film, and yes. she's not she, she's not given enough uh, room to actually make the character come to, to life. And it's like just like the Morocco scenes, for example. They um, that is where it's, that's where the romance uh, had a had a chance to really uh, bloom, but. It's just it's just rushed so so it, mm-hmm. it's just a few minutes and it's just like bam 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 and it's done and it's like oh yeah they're in love and well the the, the traditional kind of like walk around the local neighborhood and get to know each other is just a pick a shot of them climbing the steps in Tangier and that's it well here's going to be my stock line in this uh, particular episode so I'll take that a step further where it's like I am like when she says I hate you I hate you absolutely convincing and so then like later it's like i love you i love you like not convincing at all <laughs> it's terrible i think she's a great actress like yes lou is the warmest color uh fantastic you know she's amazing uh but I, I i i completely agree with what david said i think she's just they write her in a way that you know in tangia she has to you know the character is in the room that she was in with her mum and dad she's got all of these melancholy emotions and i just don't think they allow the character to have the same kind of fun uh, back and forth like what Vesper and Bond had on the train but Lisa sorry um, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of this character actually because you sort of alluded to not liking her very much over the course of some of these watch-alongs I yeah I, I actually don't like her character and again it has nothing to do with the actor herself <laughs> I think she's a brilliant actor but I just I there's nothing for me to connect and hook onto with her I don't think they give her enough material I don't think they allow her to be an original character right that I can mm-hmm. just sort of like see and get to know and maybe actually as you were talking I was thinking the same reason why I'm not a fan of hers the same reason I'm not a fan of Blofeld in this film I don't think like here's the thing with Christoph Waltz he's great in a Quentin Tarantino film because Quentin Tarantino gives him meat to work with he gives them the script and he gives them great direction and he can go in and he can sort of flesh out that role here i think it's actually a deficit of the script and the conceptualization that we don't get enough of her i don't fall in love with her in this film maybe i will the next film i fell in love with tracy as Tracy grows and feels her emotions and they grow in love together. I'm in love with Tracy by the end of the film and I'm devastated when she dies. Same with Mm -hmm. Vesper Lind. Bond is taken back by her. Like his face when he's with Vesper Lind is like, holy crap, this woman's amazing. I believe it. Here, I see nothing between them and I don't feel their chemistry at, at all, whether it's even just brooding looks or even the romance that happens. And so I think there's a deficit in like, 
the script that does not allow her to possibly be the woman that she could be. And I feel as though they, this whole film is like, she's better for you than Vesper. She's better for you than Vesper. And I don't like being hit over the head with a club watching a movie that's telling me what I'm mm. supposed to think. Either she's good enough for me to feel that way or she's not. But you don't need to keep telling me how I'm supposed to feel about her. Mm. We are uh, recording this uh, episode the day after Diana Rigg passed away. So I would actually say this. I think Diana Rigg added a lot to uh, Tracy in mm-hmm. on her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, well, that's, that's what I in, guess. Inspector, I don't think uh, Leia Sadu necessarily adds to the character as written. She may be a great, she may be a good actress, but like, I don't think she elevates a um, so-so script. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and a good part of that is direction as well. Like, I'm, I think she she probably is doing what's on the page. She's doing what you know she's being directed to, what's written on the page, and all that kind of stuff. But I just don't think that they, um, yeah, well, allow it, her to have any kind of. Fun. It, it may it, it may be down to Sam Mendes. If Sam Mendes didn't really know what he was doing with the story, mm-hmm. then he he wouldn't know how to direct her to to bring out the best of the performance as well. And mm. you know, I I think what one of the one of the big problems with Spectre is there's too much in it. It's like a it's like a three and a half hour film in a two and a half hours it's, and it's a two-part they, film that was like reduced to one which is like yeah, probably like they weren't brave enough to make decisions early on about what to yeah. actually uh, take out because there's so much that could have been taken out and because because there's too much in it um they they couldn't find the the good the, the good uh, parts of it to really bring those out, and so I, I, I think that that is one of the huge problems with it. Also, let me repeat something I said during the uh, View to a Kill watch along. Roger Bohr and Grace Jones added a lot more to that final scene with those two characters than was on the page because I, you know, I have that script and I can see what you know, I can see the final product, and they like they did a lot more than what they were given. And whether you like the film or not, like that scene, I think is like one of the high points of the film. And um, yeah, I think, I think again, Roger Moore, Grace Jones do a lot more with what they were given. And that doesn't happen here in Spectre. Except for Ben Whishaw. Ben Whishaw's performance in this film is like the highlight for me. He's great. Yes, he does get good Yes, he does get good lines, but. Geez, he earned his money on but, this one. But he, I mean, he, really pulls he, you know, he makes more of it. He's given good stuff, and then he like makes oh, yeah. more. Yeah. We're also coming up to another one of my because uh, I'm at the point with Spectre where it's like literally a few seconds is like my favorite bit of the film. Craig saying "stay" to one of the security yes. guards, I think, is really <laughs> funny. He's just like, no, it's just not worth your time. Just yeah, let me yeah. go on with this. And here's where we all thought we might get a ski sequence. Except that apparently Daniel Craig said, "Daniel Craig said I don't ski." Oh, okay. Well, we'll, re- we'll write around that. Didn't stop Brosnan. <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, Did Lazenby ski? Well, I, well, yes, he let him. He was a very good skier, but they wouldn't let him because in case he broke his leg. Mm. Yeah. Whereas Brosnan, Brosnan just had to kneel on a sled. <laughs> right. But meanwhile, like uh, Barbara Broccoli, well, like Daniel Craig's my boy. So whatever he wants, we do. 
<laughs> and he wants a plane which cannot turn on a dime and is uh, going to create another very slow moving action sequence. I just think the, you know, little Nelly in You Only Live Twice, fantastic. You know, it can helicopters can move very dynamically and it's edited in such a way that you feel a lot of action. Here, it feels so slow because every time Bond has to make a pass at this car, it, you know, it requires this whole looping around, coming back again. And they even yeah. managed to do it quite well in Quantum of Solace with sort of these big lumbering planes here. It's just, oh. They even managed doing Quantum of Solace. <laughs> but, but, but that was, but that, was like, that was aircraft versus aircraft. This is like planes versus trucks. Yeah. But SUVs. I, I, love, I love Hinks's double-barreled pistol yes. here. It's fantastic, and it's used once. Yeah, but there, there, there's, <laughs> there's something funny about that pistol, because uh, the, the manufacturer, who I think is Italian, and they had uh, the, all this splash on their website about it, but uh, I don't know if Eon are, uh, got them to pull it, because uh, it's that it, they make no reference to Spectre at all anymore. No. And it, and it, and it was yanked within days of, of, of it being publicised. Meanwhile, in the middle of this uh, action scene, um, it's the tensest Q, part of the whole movie. This bit, Q, Q is like putting it together. Oh, he's like he knows what's happening. It's like, and Q is apparently uh, threatened, but then he gets away without really well, doing this, much. This is a remnant of the draft where he was taken prisoner. Yes. Hmm. After he just found out that. You know, every villainous supporting and main character from a previous film has touched that one ring. Uh, right. Which, never which, been I'm not sure <laughs> makes sense, but they don't really explain it. But, you no. know. You know, a lot of this film doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Just listen, I, listen, I grew up on Marvel comic books. Like, I'm, like, very forgiving of, like, plot contrivances. But, like, when, when I'm not forgiving, it's like... Okay, there's a problem. <laughs> oh no, I mean this is this is the thing. Like, I, and I and I I come up against this quite a bit where people are like, oh well, you don't mind it in Skyfall when it's all the like, contrivances with Silver's plot to escape and all this kind of stuff. And and yeah, I think it, it in the Bond series, especially there are an awful lot of contrivances that we have mm -hmm. to swallow in so many films. But the difference is, if the film is made well and you just kind of enjoy the ride anyway, it doesn't matter. And I think it says right. a lot if you're not enjoying the ride and you're having to, you know, pick flaws in in, in this film, like I do quite regularly. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. I'm just, I'm not having any fun at all. I'm literally taking yes. a couple of seconds here and there as what we know what I can. And I, I've mentioned this many times before, like when Peter Hunt in 1994 was talking about, oh, like showing, like editing things from Dr. No, and it, was, it was just like, my job was to speed you through it. Like he knew all the flaws. It's like, <laughs> you have to get, you know, just, I speed you through all this stuff and you don't have time to realize it. It's like in this film, it's like there, the flaws are so in your face. It's like, yeah, like, but with the advent of digital dailies and CGI and all the rest of it, there really isn't any excuse for continuity errors anymore. This is no, and, and, and when Peter Hunt made those remarks in 94, we were back in the VHS era. So it's like, oh, like, yeah. 
But I think Calvin hits on something, and it's sort of my main critique of the Daniel Craig era. I, it, look, if you're going to do an origin trilogy, I can accept moodiness and broodiness, and I can follow you along. This is supposed to be the next step. I just want just some fun interjected. I want to be able to enjoy the ride. I want Bond to be able to enjoy the ride. Like, I am riding a plane, and we are going down kind of like a toboggan. You know, like, I want there to be some sense of enjoyment where I think I'm still just remembering, like, Diana Rigg as Tracy stock car driving. Like, it's a serious mm. scene, but, like, she's kind of enjoying it, like, what she's doing. And I feel as though there's just there's a lack of fun and lightness inspector particularly that I'm just sort of like, I'm over it. Like I've done three films of moody, broody, broodiness. Give me some like life and light. And I think that that's lacking. Mm. Don't put around, don't put around in the bad guy. Cause he looks dead. Don't shoot him. <laughs> Back in the day, 60 years ago, it's like, they didn't worry about origins. Like in Dr. No, it's like Bond had been an agent for a while. And there was like a vague reference to how he had been carrying a Beretta for 10 years, but that was about it. Yeah. But and, I mean, I've, I've said this before about um, origins is that I think they're unnecessary because, and in fact, they, they do more harm than good because um, if you just uh, give an audience a character fully formed, the the audience can make up whatever background, uh, and if if you if you spell it out, it just takes away from from that. Mm. At least for me, it does. Yeah. And on a TV show, like okay, you would like go back and you would get like some references. So like you might have an episode like in the second or third or fourth season that like flashes back to the early years of the character. And and that could be like done really well, but mm-hmm. yeah, but you didn't get bogged down right from the start because like the whole point is like when you're like trying to establish character, you want to show him or her at the top of their game, and it's just like now it's like oh we have to do this long protracted origin. And I, I'm I'm going to blame Christopher Nolan with, with Batman because uh, you know I honestly I don't care what Batman's. Uh, origins are and his motivations he's just batman so he can do some batman stuff And I really feel as though, like, I'm just at the point where I'm, like, waiting for the Bond stuff. Like, we've yeah. already – and the thing is, we've Absolutely. already had three films of yeah. Origins. I know. Just go do yes. Bond stuff. Oh, yeah, I want, I, 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 I want just a simple, straightforward Bond mission. Bond yes. M mission. Thank you. Oh, what's this film called? Oh, it's called Spectre. <laughs> so it's like a really secret organization that all the kids of the baddies know that who their dad works for. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, something much more exciting has happened in Cape Town that is uh, apparently an important part of the plot that we're not going to spend any time on. Uh, I hate this. I hate this whole sort of like uh, subplot about they're doing all these terrorist things around the world, but we don't go anywhere near that. Well, and and again, it goes back to like, okay, if the villains... Um, oh, pause in the movie, folks. All right. Yeah. Okay. Tangier, what's interesting, this street is real, but the... the- the uh, the background is is CGI. It, it, it's it's a real shot, but it's been superimposed onto this street, so it's curious. Huh. And we'll see a CGI mouse in part two. We Spoiler. will. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> That's our cliffhanger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we just saw basically 
Madeline explained the whole plot of the organization and it's been under Bond's nose this whole time. If only he'd have called her earlier and have found out. Um, <laughs> well, if, if, only, if only her dad had offered her a million pounds in gold or whatever. Yeah, and, and Q's got a laptop that can do instant animated infographics just to like, <laughs> pop these things up. Just, when is that yeah. coming on the market? I'd like one of those. Yeah, and he got the whole you know octopus logo. Um, what desktop wallpaper on his laptop? Mm. It, 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 it's it's available. It only works on Linux, though. <laughs> With two Ethernet ports on your computer, David. Yeah. It's so annoying the whole uh, villain thing as well because we just saw on Q's screen the the Spectre octopus with uh, Patrice and white, green, uh, Le Chiffre, silver. Yeah, Patrice was a gun for hire though, who worked I for many know. people. Yeah. So he's not a member of Spectre, is he? This is it. They're trying to do this whole like Marvel thing of like oh everything's connected and everything's important, and it's like I you know I know so many people like family members and stuff, and you know they see Bond films at the cinema and whatever, and they might watch one on TV every couple of years or something if it's on but they don't know they don't remember who patrice is or even green for that matter it's such a weird uh choice to call back to all those things and it also makes the world feel very small the fact that we have this villainous organization and the only faces we're seeing are you know villains from previous films whose dna is all on file apparently uh yeah, and, and and so uh, so the whole thing is completely incestuous because Bond's bound to be related to Madeline and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where's the dotted line on Q's graph that shows Bond connected to like three of these guys? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So shouldn't he be under investigation? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they need to uh, they need to um, get a team onto him to. Uh, uh, Stick him in uh, some kind well, of dodgy. In, in, in intelligence circles, they would say he's compromised. Oh. Right? Because they, they have leverage over him now, and he'd be taken out of the field. Uh, yeah, there's one person so that connects fun. everyone here. Yeah. <laughs> oh. He's. He's like the middle of like not the head and not the arms, but he's like that little middle connector part that's connecting them all. And it's yeah. something that's never. Like it never worked for me in the theater. It never worked the way that they even use like red string later on as the detonator cords. Like I really feel like they're like going into this film and like let's like braid a connection to this film. And I'm like, what are you doing? None of that is necessary. Don't forget the ten um, by eight photo cutouts from the publicity department of all the other villains. Oh my gosh! Like what is this? Yeah. So I I think for me again once again. I wish Spectre was something else. Don't be connected with all the baddies beforehand. Make it its brand new organization and give us fresh new faces. Of pot- like that's what I liked about Quantum Organization. You had these images and these people. And you're like, who the heck are these people? It's the secret organization. Maybe Bond's going to go after them. I was excited. Like Quantum Assault has his issues, but I was excited by the Quantum Organization and it's sort of it's sort of the the unraveling of it at the opera scene. I was like, this is exciting. I think that's something that I really wanted Spectre to be. Instead of trying to go back and braid together threads of connection that aren't there, you didn't give us the eggs beforehand. You didn't pre-plan these connections the way that Marvel does. So when Marvel connects them together, you're like, holy crap. You know, there's- It makes sense. It makes sense. Here it's like, I, I, it just, so much about this doesn't work because it's, 
backwards looking instead of I really wish this was a forward looking film. You want to set up Bond for the next 20 years? This is the film where you could set up what Spectre is and just run with it. Can you imagine in 1967, The Young Live Twice, if Blofeld had turned to Bond and said, it took me three years longer to build this volcano because the American currency wasn't devalued because of your actions at Fort Knox. <laughs> like, uh-huh. So why, you know, that doesn't make sense. Hurts thinking yeah. about that, but yes. <laughs> but in the script, well, the, not the script, in various bits of the scripts for this film, it's even more on the nose that Silver was head of IT for Spectre. What? He's called out. Yeah, he's called out as being head of IT for Spectre. At what point between being imprisoned in China and like, like where was he the head of IT? Um, I don't know, but that's apparently he had to call if you forgot your password. It was, oh it was like, it, it, was, it was shoehorned. It was like a desperate attempt to like, bring continuity to like films that had no real continuity but doing it after the fact yeah and that's the problem with this like because with skyfall being the standalone thing that it kind of was um thematically you know there were thematic elements carrying on from the previous two films but otherwise it it is an adventure on its own it's it's self-contained um and i was fine with that like okay great you know what we're never at the time i was thinking like we're never going to tie up those you know loose threads in quantum i'm fine with that i didn't really care that much anyway i'm fine with just doing these original adventures and then obviously here it's like oh no we are going back to that which i know is sort of like a parallel to from which we love goldfinger and thunderball but i can't imagine that that was planned and just to be clear so like when they were doing uh press events ahead of skyfall sam mendes said this has nothing to do with the two previous films nothing so then like so afterwards they said oh let's like try and tie them all together which was like stupid and should not have been done it would be like going back to the original four films whereupon if like in thunderball there was some reference to how uh goldfinger was really working for (laughs) was really working for specter all along when he clearly wasn't maybe he was the specter jeweler (laughs) <laughs> i didn't see that one coming <laughs> so a lot of people say the first half is better than the second half um okay i think it's <laughs> sorry sorry thin, mar- thin, thin margins based on to how today's gone no i i think it is it, uh they didn't make the most of what they had in the first half but it, it is uh it, i mean it's the third act when it it completely goes completely wrong but, yeah. uh, well when you say third act this is the thing i have against spectre where exact we pause exactly halfway mm-hmm. where we go to tangier mm-hmm. that should be the start of the third act well, it but is. Halfway, I mean, but we're halfway through the film. This is a film with four acts. Like, it definitely, like, I, I b- firmly believe it does. And I think this is the start of the third act where we've stopped. And the fourth act begins, um, well, we'll get there. I, I, well, I, guess. I mean, Craig, I mean, Bond even says it almost to camera. It's not over yet. Yeah, no, <laughs> another it, 25 it, minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it, yeah, okay. Well, the, the fourth act then. Uh, whatever. The, 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 the you know, ending. The, 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 the film. So my point is that what, 
when I was thinking about this the, the other night, we were like, we're cut Spectrum to two halves. I don't know many other Bond films where you could actually find the exact midpoint is the midpoint because it's it's the structure doesn't work. Yeah, that way. I, mm. I, I was I was surprised when you said it was uh, one minute seventeen into the film that would take the break because yeah, I, it one was minute like, seventeen. It's like it, one hour <laughs> seventy. Shut up. <laughs> it felt like that. It felt yeah. like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like three. I, I was surprised when you said an hour and 17 minutes into the film because it was like, yeah, that's halfway through. Yeah. By the way, my Blu-ray is still playing. It's like oh, this Tanjiro scene. It's like I'm rubbing my eyes like, oh, this is so bad. Anyway. We'll um, get there. We'll get there next Had week. You- just to James's point about uh, sort of it cons- uh, the first half is considered to be the better half. Um, I'm not a fan of this film at all, as I, I think I've made that um, clear throughout this. Uh, my distinction is that I find the first half of it boring, and I find the second half kind of heinous almost in, on a conceptual <laughs> level with what it decides to do. Um, and, and that's the distinction for me. So, uh, so Calvin, tell us what you really think. <laughs> heinous. Uh, on a conceptual oh, boring, level. Boring versus heinous. Oh, well, that's uh, quite an interesting debate. <laughs> was, I mean, I'm I, hearing I, I this commentary. The Eon Productions decided not to approach Calvin to commentate on the new Blu-ray release. <laughs> They never get in touch with well, me anyway. Well, well, well trust me, they uh, they decide to uh, not uh, bring Calvin into comment uh, after they invi- decide not to invite, invite me to comment on. <laughs> so, so. I I think Lisa, you touched on something about Bond not having any fun or having any enjoyment yeah. in this movie. I hadn't thought about that before. That. He's fucking miserable the whole way through. He's he's been fucking miserable the whole Craig era. (laughs) Like 2006 to present. Is Is this a surprise? But honestly, this is a stale. Like I say, the whole Craig era is a downer. This is stale at this point. Like I, again, I can mm-hmm. handle three films of this. This film, I'm like, even Daniel Craig doesn't look like he's having fun doing this. Like he just looks That's like what I mean. grumpy. Yeah. That's what I mean. Do you is does that is does that surprise you? Then he said, "I'd slash my wrist before I did another one." Like maybe he was like being honest when he said that. Like mm-hmm. people say, "Well, he was like coming off a long." Difficult shoot, blah blah blah. Maybe, but like, maybe he was like, huh, "I'm like, I'm ready to like kill myself. Yeah, I'll slash my wrists." So, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to go there, but just I mean, he did, he did make those those comments, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I, I don't think he enjoyed the process. I think sort of feigning suicide is problematic in and of itself um, as being sort of just commentary. Yesterday was National Suicide Awareness Month. And and so, like, I think we have to be really careful about when we talk about, like... I did think about that, Lisa. I, didn't, I decided not to tweet it. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I think we have to be careful about the way that we, like, use rhetoric of suicide just because so many people are struggling, especially with the pandemic. However, mm-hmm. I think what Daniel Craig was trying to express um, was the fact that he was miserable on this shoot. And I don't think that there's any excitement or joy that comes through his performance at all. And I don't think they gave him moments to enjoy it. And I'm hoping, I mean, he doesn't look or act or feel that way on No Time to Die. At least, again, we've only seen the trailers. Um, But I think that there's a 
there's a difference there. I can sort of feel it in terms of its tone already. And I'm hoping that that's the energy looks the energy looks a lot different. Yeah, there well, is energy. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I must say clearly Daniel Craig didn't care about uh, such uh, f- <laughs> phrasing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, "Like slash my wrists." Yeah, I, I if you read the whole uh, interview, I, I, I think it's clear that he, he was joking about it, and uh, uh, I, you know, I, I, it, it, he'd been on a nine month shoot or whatever it was, and yeah, you know, he'd, he'd screwed up his knee, had it operated on, on, and so on, and so you know, there's no doubt that that is hard physically, it's hard mentally, you, you know, it, it, it is. Um, you know, even if you're doing, uh, you know, even if you're doing something that's not not so demanding, you know, uh, in many respect respects, I think acting, um, acting's not like, uh, you know, uh, going go- down to mine. Well, well, just to be clear, like you, that interview was presented in Q and A Q&A format. It was like. That quote did not come up until about oh, no. 13, 14, 15 questions in. So, oh, sure. um, so when I'm making jokes about that, it's like, yeah, I get that. And it's like, yeah, it was like it wasn't after a long heart shoot. But at the same time, there are Craig fanboys who are like, oh, the media was like treated him badly like no, he like said that. He really said that. And you can like and you can like reconstruct the context of everything. It's like um The interview was done. That time that interview was done on the la- one of the last days of shooting where Craig jumps out yes. the window of the meeting in Rome and on and, that, and on he that, did another and one and he did another one after that, like with another day. This video interviews of him sitting on that set is the last bit they shot. And so you can see that his demeanor mm-hmm. on video of the same day he did that, that timeout interview. And I think it smacks of like the timeout guy had no idea what he had. He was sitting on like this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What I was going to say was a day or two after that interview, he did another one with Rolling Stones where he said more or less the same thing. And again, it was like presented in a Q and a format. So like, any Craig fanboy wants to say, oh, that's like, that's a rumor. That's not true. No, it's true. He said it. And he said it in two interviews, not just one. You can go back if you want to be actually be bothered with facts and actually go back and like read both interviews if you want to. One was with Time Out London. The other was with Rolling Stone. And again, it's like, yeah, like and there's some hyperbole here and there, and that's fine. But like, he was he was clearly like tired, pissed off, whatever. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a long hard shoot, and but but to try to pretend, oh, that means nothing. No, I think it meant something at the time. I think just my point is that when we say things, and again, as somebody who teaches courses on social justice and ability and ableism, I think it's just, it's important for us to just be careful about the language that we utilize because there are people who are truly suicidal in this world. And sometimes we say things in hyperbole, but it undermines people who actually are going through that. So this is just sort of like a side comment, regardless of how Daniel Craig feels. I felt at the moment, I think that we just have to be a little bit more careful with the way that we sort of uh, utilize this type of, of language. 
that's just sort of my point. Yeah. Just be clear, I'm saying Daniel Craig was not being very careful when he said yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And like, as well, we've been talking, like, I can see, like, Spectre continue to play on my Blu ray. It's like, ugh. Um, well, the and- other thing is, do you think, <laughs> I, I don't think Craig did any sit down interviews on the last day of filming for No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. So I think they learned the lesson not to, not to do that. If he did, he probably had a minder with him. Somebody, Daniel, like, uh, the, I had the, a, the, like, a, like a club. <laughs> Daniel. The, long, the, the long lead international press for the end of No Time to Die shooting was uh, Lashana Lynch and Anna de Armas on the Cuba set. Yeah. So, and of course, they, they didn't have the same schedule as Craig, right? So, and can, that also, I think, raises, I think you really raise a really good point. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. Just the way that the, again, I know all of us are sort of on a podcast and some of us do media work. But imagine being on the other side of that. I, I couldn't imagine doing a press junket for a movie and being asked a million questions um, and, and having to give like a positive spin for absolutely everything, well, especially after a long shoot. It's about three questions asked a million times. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right, which is worse. Yeah. Which is even worse. And I can understand how frustrating that might be and how like you're, you have to truly act beyond your acting position to maintain that. Even if you don't like the film, even if you don't like the position, maybe you can come back years later and reflect upon it. And even that becomes news, especially if you're in the world of Bond. And we sort of had uh, a recently an actor look back upon her role and be like, I probably oh, yeah. would take that role well, again. She, meanwhile, meanwhile, like, okay, you go through all these interviews and like somebody happens to ask the one question you're not trained to do and like catches you off guard. It's like, you have to be like really, you know, you have to be really prepared for that. And then, you know, I don't know, but somebody asks you something that's like, you, you're, you don't have a, I can tell you they, 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 they did the interviews in a different way on no time to die. Cause mm-hmm. we know how they did them. And, um, yeah, it was. Let's just say it was more controlled this time. Yeah, I'm so. sure it was, especially after Spectre. Good God. Yeah, maybe they were thinking that because he he was um, an executive producer on it, that maybe he would be looking after uh, co-producer technically. But yes, co-producer was yes. Sorry, yes, co-producer. Yes, that's right. Um, because he was co-producer, that maybe he'd look after the film a bit more. Um, um, no. Not really. <laughs> I think. I think. Uh, to be honest, I think co-producer was like a title, an on, you know, an honorific well, title. I, I just want to throw this out for Spectre because we did all the press, and Sam Mendes bailed on it. He did not do his commitments for cup for for media for this film. He walked away from it. Um, Michael G. Wilson, I think, has been publicly known now as recovering from surgery and stuff. I mean, he was not going to be front and center on it. Barbara Broccoli wasn't really that active in front of the, the press for Spectre. So it landed on Craig to do pretty much all of it. So I'll That's give him a pass. I'll give him a pass on, on, on being grumpy if he's been put front and center on every single media activity because nobody else stepped up. Well, I'll, I'll add one more thing. Both Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli are very private people and they do not, Occasionally, sometimes they do publicity stuff, but it's not their right. preference. Add it to the so, list. Yeah. Leia Sadu, not the best interview because English isn't her first language. She gives very short answers. Christoph yeah. Waltz, they weren't going to let him do interviews because they don't want to blow the whole – because you know the only thing he's going to get asked about. 
right? Right. <clears throat> so <laughs> Craig was the only one out there doing PR for this movie, and then that's why, like, and, and the thing was that was a totally bad move because he doesn't like doing it either. Right. And it's yeah, like, exactly. yeah. So so at some point, if yeah, he, he, he's wants, private as well. Yeah, so if Eon really wants to continue doing James Bond films, they really need to decide, we need somebody to be our public face. If Barbara doesn't want to do it, if Michael doesn't yeah. want to do it. Well, we, we all know it's like the only person they have in the stable is Naomi Harris. And there's only so much she can do because mm-hmm. she's because she's a, a supporting character. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm lecturing more at this uh, episode. I apologize, but <laughs> it just... it. Having followed this thing for more than a decade in an intense way, it's like I'm like I don't want to like be the skunk at the garden party, but like you have to like acknowledge reality at some point. That's all I'll say. You know, we've gone an hour and a half and not mentioned the yellow filter on this movie. So. Yeah. I, 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 I decided not to mention it because it's so. <laughs> obvious uh all right so part one um quick wrap up because i gotta go um are we there's no vote for next week right <laughs> right i vote for you only live twice next week <laughs> uh Lisa, do you want to wrap up what are your feelings on part one Um, Look, Spectre is not my favorite film, but, you know, it's been enjoyable watching it with all of you. When I went to the movie theater to watch Spectre, I'm not sure. Okay, so first of all, it was an empty theater until it was right about to start. And then um, three senior couples actually just sat like two rows in front of me. And so I listened to their commentary, just like commenting on the trailers and like little things here and there. And so I think I actually enjoyed Spectre a lot through the group experience, hearing them in their comment, like, oh, look at this. And oh, look at that. Um, So I do look back on the physical experience of it being a little bit more pleasurable because it wasn't a group aspect. And so watching it with all of you um, has made this a heck of a lot more enjoyable than any time I've watched this on my own uh, to study. It. And I know that, you know, we can be critical about elements, but I think we're coming from a position of like love and passion for the series. And when we see potential in something, like I think there's a lot of potential here to do some really interesting things. And when that doesn't materialize, I think that's where the frustration comes, at least from me. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's some some nuggets of goodness in here. I just really would like the entire pot of gold. Well, David, uh, do you want to rebalance? Yeah. I'll. Uh, I, I. I. I always like Spectre. Uh, I've liked it from the first time I've seen it, and I. I, I like rewatching it too. And. Uh, and you know, if I, I. I guess if there is any Bond film that is my guilty pleasure, although I. I. I, I don't feel guilty about it at all. It, it's Spectre because I, I know it has so many issues that is not true, and uh, and I, I have no idea why I can forgive it for that. And uh, but I, I do, uh, and I enjoy it. So uh, that's all I can say. Calvin Bill. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I mean, I think to to 
make a point, you know, to uh, sort of refer back to a point that uh, what Lisa said about, you know, we obviously come to this, we all love the series, and I know we've probably been more critical of this than we have most other films in 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 these in this watch along series, and we all have a least favorite in the official series. For me, for me, this is this is it. This is Spectre, and uh, I. I think we'll get more into reasons why in the next part, I suppose. Um, I, I guess for this point, for, for this part, I'll just say that, you know, I, I, I watch a Bond film for the thrill ride and the enjoyment and the experience and the fun and all that kind of stuff. So if I'm to equate it to kind of roller coasters, most roller coasters, I might not necessarily enjoy them all as much as uh, as each other. Some will be better than others. Um, it's very rare that I will critique a roller coaster on the fact of like, oh well, that track isn't quite right, and that bolt doesn't look, doesn't fit in there quite right, and I don't like the color of that track and all this kind of stuff. And that's where I am with Spectre. It's not that I'm just not enjoying the ride; I'm not enjoying so much of it in concept. Um, and just what they're trying to do and where they're trying to take me as a as a viewer. And we get much more of that in the second part, so I guess we'll talk more about it then. But it's just I'm just kind of on a ride and I'm being taken up to the big sort of drop and I'm like, I don't want to go here. I've not enjoyed it so far. I think I know what you're going to do and I don't like it. Um, and, and that's where I am with this one. Um, I'll just say... Um... I think we've already watched the best half of Spectre. Um, but there'll be more to talk about in part two. Um, it's not a lost cause by any means, but um, actually the worst part of Spectre, I think, was actually the publicity campaign rather than the film itself. And we can talk about more more about that in part two. Are we doing yeah, a watch I mean, along of the publicity campaign? <laughs> no, no. I'll talk about that yeah. when we that, get to part two. That's part three to watch along. We've got to watch every single video. <laughs> no, no, we do not. We do not have to watch every. No, I don't want to watch every publicity thing. I please no. Uh, let me in, in what, every I'll language. Take, let me oh. take. I'll take it a step further. It's like my problem is like. Do I think Daniel Craig is a bad James Bond? No. Do I think the but do I think the worst part of Daniel Craig is his what he says during the publicity campaign? Yes. And <laughs> yeah. it's like it's terrible. And and it's like and so then when it comes to Spectre, it's like, Daniel, you have to like do you have to be the uh, guy who carries the load. That's not a good decision. Anyway. Yeah, well well previously they thought um that after Connery left the, the series and when he was asked who the uh, biggest Bond villain was and he said uh, Cubby Broccoli, they, they thought that was the worst interview that could possibly happen. But then Daniel Craig. There you go. Um, I'll just say this. Uh, the, the worst, the, the bad decisions for this movie start at the very beginning, which is like, what should we call it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you, you know, they, they, they should have like concluded the whole uh, uh, quantum storyline. Just well, they, they just couldn't help themselves. They just couldn't help themselves because they won the right Spectre. Spectre. They got him after McClory popped off, and they got the and the family didn't want to know you got the rights back. They had to use it. What should we do? Slap it over the title. But then you do that. What do you? What does everybody associate with Spectre? Blowfield. Uh, yeah, he's not in this film. 
I'm like, bullshit. Right? And everybody knew it was bullshit. And it's just like, you've just set the audience up on this like fake out that everybody knows right from the start. And it's like, you're just creating ill will from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's wearing a Blofeld costume. Hmm. Waltzes. Like, you know, like, you don't have to do that. Like, again, going back to From Russia With Love and Thunderball, Blofeld's wearing a suit, a suit and tie. Like, yeah. no, that, you know, that whole thing about the Nehru jacket thing didn't come along to the only live twice. You know, you didn't have to follow that path at all. And then, you know, we'll get into part two. Just, just, like, anyway, hit your head against the wall. Yeah, um, a sequence of unfortunate events, mm. right? And a, a lot of these were unforced errors that they, you know, it's, and at two point, Lisa, where you say like, you know, we get frustrated when we see potential and it's not realized. And that's, to me, that pisses me off too. Um, mm-hmm. But when there's forks in the road and everybody knows that one of them is bad and then they decide to plow down it anyway and then double down on it and kind of like almost gaslight you into thinking that, wrong it's like come on honest god in 1988 i said oh jack nicholson's gonna be in the new batman film will he play joker oh we can't say he's a joker he's really playing jack napier blah 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 blah. like you know that's as stupid as this was (laughs) okay and uh i've got a uh, just a a thought a thought about blofeld and uh Mm -hmm. it was yesterday uh i was coming back home from walking the dog and um, this white cat shot out across the road. Uh, it, was, it was a neighbor's mm. cat shot, shot out across the road, hid in some bushes. And uh, I, I just thought the name of that cat is Ghost. Uh, and I, I've, got, I've got no idea what, where that came from. But then afterwards I thought, actually, uh, is that why there was a white cat in the Bond films, because Spectre is Ghost. Uh, in uh, 1979, there was a um, spy TV show in the U.S., and it didn't. It got canceled after half season. But in one of the episodes, Robert Culp played a villain, and he had a little white poodle instead of a white cat. And. Um, Anyway, just like, God, at this point, you know, at that point, like, even then, like, the white cat was so set in people's minds, like, you can't get away with doing something other than a white cat for Blofeld. So, anyway. All right. On, um, on that feline bombshell. On that obscure note. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll call it a week, and we'll see if for part two, uh, where things are really going to kick off. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, you've been a bit silent, Ben. That's right. All right. <laughs> and I might have to remarks that were like maybe over the top, but I couldn't help myself. But all right. Thanks very much, guys. See you Take next care. week. Yep. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Spend the
Cause the writing's on the 